Welcome to On Mission, the teaching ministry of the Mission Church in Irvindale. We exist to love God by loving others, leading them to become fully functioning followers of Christ Jesus. Join Pastor Mike as he teaches through the Gospel of Luke. So a disciple is simply this, and this is what the word means. It means a student, a follower, a learner. If you come to faith in Jesus Christ, then you are a disciple. Whether you behave like one or not is a whole nother topic. But you are, if you're following Jesus, then you are a learner of Jesus. You are a student of Jesus, and you should be walking in lockstep with Jesus. That is what a disciple is. An apostle, however, is a messenger, an ambassador, a representative of. As you can see, there's quite a difference between being a disciple and being an apostle. Mark this down. Jesus had many disciples. We tend to think of 12. We're always saying that. I've said that. Why do I do that? That is so incorrect. Stop saying that if you say that. Don't talk about 12 disciples. He had hundreds of disciples. Okay? But from the many disciples... Jesus chose 12 men who would become apostles. Men who, after their training, would have the unique privilege and distinct burden of being Jesus' first-generation messengers of the gospel, ambassadors to the nations, and his authoritative representatives of his kingdom. Given that these apostles would be the foundation upon which Christianity would be built with Jesus being the chief cornerstone, whose names also would be inscribed in the 12 foundation stones of the New Jerusalem, the selection of these men carried unfathomable or unfathomable, or however you say that word, a great weight. More than comprehensible is the weight that, 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 that lay on Jesus as he's about to pick from the many disciples the 12 apostles who would become the foundation of Christianity and have their names inscribed in the foundation stones of the New Jerusalem. What an awesome privilege. That brings me to truth point number one. That although Jesus is God in flesh, During his earthly ministry, he operated primarily from the human side with his divine attributes surrendered to the Father. You say, what does that mean? Well, it means that despite his inherent authority, inherent authority over all things, he needed, I use that word needed, he needed communion with the Father in prayer to discern the Father's will concerning the matters that he faced. Jesus in that way in his flesh was no different than you and me. He didn't just possess all of that knowledge and just use it at will. That was all relinquished to the Father. And so now he must spend time. He must go to the Father. He must ask of the Father. Despite the fact that all authority was his, He dare not engage the task of choosing 12 apostles without first inquiring of the Father who should receive that call. So the impetus or the energy or the drive or the thrust of Jesus' authority on earth, catch this, was his dependent posture of prayer. You want to know what his drive, what was the thrust 
What was the energy? It was his dependent posture of prayer to the Father, submitted to the Father's authority, reliant upon the Father's power to make kingdom decisions or to take kingdom action. And we see it clearly demonstrated there in verse 12. He spent the entire night. I could go into the Greek terms of the original language and show you how the words are there that actually indicate it wasn't all night is not just an example or just a, uh, a figure of speech. It literally means all night. We're talking 12, 10 to 12 hours of prayer. Who in here has done that? That's what Jesus, the Son of God, required to make this choice. Well, out of Jesus' dependent prayer, we find confident, powerful, and decisive action moving God's kingdom plan forward. Jesus gathers his disciples, and from that number, as we've already established, he calls 12 men whose lives are going to be transformed and empowered to lay the foundation and launch the worldwide movement that has become known as Christianity. So I think it's proper that we would ask these questions, who are these men? And what caliber of man did Jesus call? And what was their qualification to be called? Now, in verses 13 through 16, we find the names of the men. And if you go to other sources, uh, some of them biblical, some of them historical, uh, you begin to find a little bit about these men. For example, we have two sets of brothers uh, mentioned here. We have Peter and James. We have John and Andrew. So there's family there. Then we have Levi, who we've already talked about in a message prior, who his name was changed to Matthew, the same guy who wrote the gospel. He, he was a sellout tax collector uh, to the Roman uh, government. And then we see mentioned Simon, who is called a zealot, meaning that he was pro-Israel and, note, militantly negative against anything that wasn't pro-Israel. In fact, so... Um, Pro-Israel were these militants that if Jesus was not there leading them, Simon would have been inclined to whack Levi because he was a sellout to those they hated. And so you've got a couple of guys there who politically are just, they're just not compatible. And then you've got Philip and Bartholomew, who his name was also known as Nathaniel, Thomas, son, James, son of Alphaeus, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus to his death. So, among those names, here's what we have. We have four fishermen. We have one tax-gathering sellout. We have one hot-blooded Israeli nationalist. We have five incons- inconsequential country boys, and we have one thieving traitor. Those are the men Jesus prayed all night for. And, you know, we're tempted to ask that question, aren't we? When it's brought before us and it's put in our face. Jesus, you prayed 12 hours? You prayed, to the, you have a direct link. I mean, you and the Father are one. You, 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 you beat us hands down. You spent 12 hours praying. That's the best you could come up with? It is funny. Laugh, because it's funny. It's hilarious. But consider this. Consider that apart from the revelation that might be received through prayer, who would we have picked for this history-changing task? 
Well, we would have picked the most educated, the most experienced, the most confident, the most ability-laden, the most celebrated, the fastest-paced, the most aggressive, the most nonsense, no-nonsense men that we could find. And why would we do that? Why would we do that? Because we all know that you cannot win with losers. I mean, am I right? Don't leave me up here flapping in the breeze. I know I'm right. Because I know that's how we think. When we interview people to come on the job at principal or wherever else it is you work, you don't look for guys like Jesus picked. Those are the ones you hurry out of the office as fast as you can get them going. Because you know you can't win. You can't make money. You can't change culture with losers. Yet through dependent prayer, Jesus confidently and authoritatively picked 12 top losers. Why? Because he knew as they labored in their apostleship that their inability would highlight God's ability working through them so that the praise would be God's alone for doing the impossible with the impossible. Only one with the authority Jesus possessed would dare make such low-lying fruit the foundation of his eternal kingdom. But that is exactly what he did. Exactly what he did. Leads me to truth point number two. This is one I I really hope will just be in your mind and you won't forget it anytime soon, that Jesus has no need for the self-confident, the self-improved, the self-promoting to build his kingdom. He uses humble, shaky, least likely people to carry his message, to train his workers, and to build his kingdom. And if you doubt that, all you must do is look up here because I'm one of those. No matter how much I may have you buffaloed by a great exterior and handsome face and <laughs> a nice patriotic shirt, I, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I am the shaky least likely. And if you knew my history, you'd know that. But that's who Jesus selects. Well, we move to verses 17 through 19 and the sufficiency of Jesus' authority. And when we think of the word authority, I just want to make sure that you understand what we're talking about. The word authority speaks of power, of command, of control, of mastery, of dominance, of dominion, of rule, of sovereignty, of supremacy. And authority identifies one's right to enforce their vision of how things ought to be and to expend the resources to make it happen. That's what authority means. When I was in the military and I was working for colonels, uh, and they're just one step below a general, they had a lot of authority. And working with them on a, a closed installation, they had the authority, which means they had the right to make things be the way they interpreted they should be. They didn't have to ask me, they didn't need my opinion, they didn't need my consent. They had the authority. They had the command. And not only did they have the right, 
to make things be the way they thought they should be. They also had the right to spend the resources to make it happen. And that's Jesus. Scripture tells us that one day, Jesus is coming again. And when he does, he will exercise his authority over all creation. And he will manifest his vision of how things ought to be. Do you realize that's happening? That's coming? There's coming a day when Jesus will come and he will, in his physical body, from Jerusalem, rule this world for a thousand years. And when he does, he will have things the way he wants them. He won't ask you, and he won't ask you, he won't ask me. He'll just enact it because he has the right. And it's going to be a wonderful governance, no doubt. One that I think we would all vote for and say, give me, give me two or three helpings of that. But he will do that. But as we think about that future time when Jesus will come and he will govern in such a way that all things will become exactly as he wants them to be, we, we ought to ask the question, well, how does Jesus want things to be? Is there anything in the Bible that tells us what he wants things to be like? This is On Mission. The Mission Church is located at 12001 Ridgemont Drive in Urbandale. To learn more about our ministry, visit our website at themissiondsm.org or call us at 515-255-2122. We gather for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. We would be honored for you to join us. Have a blessed day, and thank you for listening to On Mission. On Mission.